This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Trevor Horn, multi-million selling record producer, live performer, and the man who invented the 80. Still delivering a prolific output of record releases and touring around the world with the Trevor Horn Band, playing his favorite bass guitar at concerts, which in Brazil started two in the morning, being so hot during the day. He's reimagined the 80s, assembling a 65-piece orchestra and singing talent to front it, including Robbie Williams, Seal, Rumor, Simple Minds, and even reinterpreting his own best works. Yes! Trevor's won three Brit Awards for Best British Producer, a Grammy for Seal's 1994 hit Kiss from a Rose, and in 2010, the Ivan Avello Award for Outstanding Contribution to British Music. Born in County Durham 70 years ago, Trevor's father was a semi-professional musician himself and taught young Trevor the basics of double bass. And he'd even fill in for his dad in the Joe Clark Band when he was late for a gig himself. Trevor then taught himself to play the bass guitar. In 1980, he married Jill Sinclair, and they have four children, including Aaron, who's followed Dad into the business as a musician and a producer. Jill passed away in 2014, the victim of a tragic accident after seven and a half years in a coma. Here he can phone anyone up and make new sounds like Rob the Mod. Wake up, man. I think I got something to say to you. It's late September, and I really should be back at my school. I know I keep you. But I feel I'm being used Oh my, I couldn't try anymore I thought of uh, converting to Judaism a few times because um, I believe in it much more than I would believe in pretty much anything else was confirmed into the Christian faith by the Bishop of Durham as a teenager, but has attended synagogue regularly for over 30 years. The Jewish faith, it says, um, seek the fortune or seek the um, success of the city to which you have been exiled. You know, and I think that's, I think that's the, the way you have to look at Jews, that's what they do. Jews try and make things better. They're, they're, they're in a country and and they may not, you know, they go slightly separate religion, but if you need them to help with anything, they're an amazing resource, you know. 
will discuss his journey into Judaism later. And in opening our interview by asking him to reflect on his career, a word to the wise in the style of the legendary American comic, George Burns. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. <laughs> the privilege, yeah, the privilege to be alive. <laughs> and, you know, if I wasn't alive, I couldn't look back on it. So yes, it's definitely a privilege. You know, I kind of like to keep doing new stuff as well, you know what I mean? I can get a bit bored with the old stuff sometimes. I was lucky enough to make some good records with some really great people. Now, you have reimagined the 80s orchestrally, bringing it back for a new generation and a chance to work with a new generation of stars like Robbie Williams. Mm. And then also was going back with Simple Minds and Tony Hadley and a, a reprise with uh, with Seal as well. Yeah, no, it was basically anybody I could lay my hands on who I thought could <laughs> sing the songs. So I wasn't too bothered about where they came from. It was obviously going to be older people because that's the more the kind of people I would have, have immediate access to. With Robbie Williams, um, so you pick up the phone to him and say, look, this is what I want you to sing. Relationships are quite informal. It didn't take you very long, did it? No, um, you know, when you've made a record with somebody, a few records, you know, they they know that you'll get them sounding good and they're always up for doing something, you know, and uh, I knew Rob would like to do that song and it sounded great, you know, everybody wants to rule the world. When I told him about it, I sent him a, a mix of the backing track and he loved it, so... That opening is so cool, you know, with the orchestra. It's so happy. suppose if one is being honest there's an element of putting a coating of sugar on it you know to make it easier to digest but there's something orchestral about your original work too the perfection of the studio when you take pieces like art of noise when you take owner of a lonely heart yeah well we were all musicians you know so we're all musicians and you know we, we sort of um, how can i say whether you're, whether you're working with an or it pop music it doesn't matter if it's with an orchestra or with a band, you know, it's 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 the same thing. It's we're all surprisingly similar musicians.
Is there an element of George Martin in the inspiration for you to be a producer? Because he was such a perfectionist, an analogue perfectionist in some ways. I mean, you've had the benefit of no, digital. George, what was good about George Martin was that he didn't... He managed to sort of produce the Beatles without screwing them up, you know? <laughs> and that's a big thing for a producer. Producers can really mess bands up. And uh, George Martin didn't mess them up. He just made them better all the time. And uh, if you think about it, no one's ever really topped his string arrangements. String arrangements for pop records, George Martin did the best ones. Somehow he could, they weren't cheesy, you know? They were, I mean, that, that sort of string quartet arrangement for Owen Rigby is something else, you know? Yeah. I don't think it's, a, maybe it's a sextet or whatever, it's, but it's an amazing arrangement. It's, it's brilliant. It's, it's sort of, I, I don't know, he could do it without being corny. If you think about the contrast between that and something like Phil Spector's, you know, Long and Winding Road, which is still good and I like it, but boy, is that a cheese ball arrangement, you know? George a lot actually at, at, at loads of um, awards things I used to talk to him of course I used to ask him about the Beatles what was it like what were they like you know didn't ask it like that I would go in from the side maybe but uh, <laughs> but it, it was funny actually you know when you work when I, I worked with Paul you know I spent a lot of time in the studio with Paul and I, I used to think man he was just one of four of them and he's a proper live wire sorry he could play anything Full of ideas, great fun. I had a good time with him. We did like three really good tracks for an album called Flowers in the Dirt. It would have must have. I would love to have watched them at it. There's a. I was looking through some old footage of them playing Hey Jude. And I was thinking, what a good, what a good acoustic guitar part John Lennon was playing. He was playing this sort of funny part, but boy, it really worked with the piano. They were good, you know. I can't remember where the, where the question started. You were talking it's about a good Martin. answer. So I just want to just take this opportunity to unpack what you think a producer is. It's like a sort of modern-day conductor, isn't it? You see, if you think, where did producers actually start? Why did you need a producer in the first place? What did they actually do? I can only go back a certain distance, but I know back in the day when people like Frank Sinatra and uh, was recording in the 40s and the 50s, the main sort of person that you might associate with being a producer would be the arranger. The producer would be a staff guy working for whatever the record label was and his job would be to just oversee the session and make sure that it got recorded. The arranger would have written the arrangement in conjunction with Sinatra, whether it was Nelson Riddle or someone else like that, you know. So the job was a slightly different job. For instance, in 1965, the guy that produced Like a Rolling Stone didn't even, wasn't even credited on the record. It was, he was a staff producer for CBS. As the sort of technology became more complex, 
back in the you know back in the 50s the technology was simpler but it required a lot more people to work it and it had you know you had to make a record in a certain way and it was possible to do overdub to overdub but that was a new thing and people didn't really understand it the first eight track didn't, didn't actually come out until the end of the 50s the, the more technology came in the more you the producer became like a kind of bridge between the uh, te- technology side of it and the artistic side of it and then I suppose you know if you think about it one of the reasons that George Martin was such a good producer for the Beatles is he'd made comedy records before and so he was good at sort of sound effects and all kinds of stuff you know um, and suddenly the producer wasn't just a jobbing guy employed by the record label he was somebody that started to be creatively involved in the making of the record and the more the technology became you know the more you could do with what you got the more you needed a producer so by the end of the 70s if you went into a studio and you wanted to make a decent sounding record if you did it yourself man it would sound shit you need to do it with a producer because the producer knew what was going on in the studio knew what you could do how drums could sound you know and then you know when it went from sort of you know when I started it was you know 8 to 16 16 to 24 24 to 48 boy that was a learning curve you know there it was a whole different world mm. you know I'm going to write a book about it at some point learning how to work all that gear you know learning learning how to get stuff to sound takes years you know or it used to now they teach it in university talent I always think should be, better be expressed as a sort of aptitude or a desire yeah. within reason if there's something you want to do even if you're not that well equipped for it if you want to do it enough you'll figure out a way to do it you know and I think it's more to do with having the desire to do something be, some people might think that they wanted to make a record but the reality is spending days and days sometimes especially back in the day where you really had to create the thing on tape trying to get it to sound right when you sort of refer to a kind of perfection I was one of the first people to be in a position to actually do something that was more or less perfect because I was was the first person who could literally manipulate everything you know and that all sort of happened at the beginning of the ocean Some people can get the V right. <laughs> you know, when I had an artist once who wanted to do fifty takes of every line. You know, literally, and man, that was purgatory. <laughs> so obviously, the job of the producer became more and more complicated with the technology. But now we're seeing pop stars selling their wares in a less conventional way. They're not selling it via 
CDs, their their downloads, and so what impact has that had on record producers? You know, the idea of producing a masterpiece in the studio uh, is slightly diminishing, isn't it? Because everyone has to go on tour to make money. Yeah, producers have suffered the most, probably, out of anybody. Um, what most producers do now is take a piece of the song. The thing is, I never used to take a piece of the song because, A, most of the time I published it. Even if I didn't, I still didn't try and take part of this. Unless I actually wrote something, I never took anything. And some, But that's, you know, stretching it because a few times, you know, we really did write stuff. Um, I mean, something like the whole... Middle section of Welcome to the Pleasure Zone. I was like ten minutes in the middle, and means two lips, and you know, they never wrote that. They were with a three-minute song. Mm-hmm. But at the time, we published them, and, and I always thought it was the price of uh, freedom that if I wasn't wasn't going for any of the publishing, then nobody could complain when I told them the song wasn't right. Because <laughs> some producers are like, right, the song's not right. I've rewritten it for you, and you've got to give me fifteen percent of it. But, but you know when I did things like Under a Lonely Heart I wrote the verses and the tune and the lyrics for Under a Lonely Heart so I got you know, 20% of that yeah so your question was yeah yeah producers are having a tough time but yeah. um, it's not something that you could do people can't pay for it really things don't get produced in the same way um, records aren't you know made unless they're old fashioned records which are made very specifically for a market say like you know this album I've just done you know a lot of things just start from a, people, they call it writing session, but in fact they're making a kind of a record, you know. What's the record that springs to mind is the, the one that's most memorable, the one that put you, you spent so much time perfecting? Um, I suppose, if I think of uh, Honor of Lonely Heart, that's a really, it's technically, it's a really interesting record because it's such an interesting collection of things, and it works so well. 12 inches were great because that's, people liked them. They weren't like the single. They had stuff on yeah, them. Yeah. And, everything, yeah. and the other thing about them was they were one ninety nine and not 85 pence. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a complaint from a, a customer 30 years on. You're still touring. Yeah. You're still performing as a bass guitarist. Yeah, I, I like to play. It's, really, it's a really nice feeling playing with a bunch of musicians, you know. Who do you play with? Well, most of the time I'm playing with. Um, I've got a band, so I put. It's a. It's a nine-piece band. Nine of us. We've been together for a while now. Most of the other guys are young. Me and my old friend Lord Cream and Jack Lash Stone or. And I play with the Dire Straits a lot, you know, Alan Clark, Steve Ferroni, and all that lot, you know. I'm off to Brazil with them next month for 10 days. Well, actually 15 days. That's quite... Being on the road, you know, in Brazil is no joke, especially when you get to my age, because it's like sometimes the gigs at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know. 
Really? Tonight, yeah, because it's too hot during the day. Right, wow, that is late. Or early, as the case may yeah. be. Um, so production really is where you made your name after a performance career in the 70s. And this is, in no small credit, to your late wife, Jill Sinclair, who encouraged you to take the step. What was it that she saw in your sort of talents that steered you towards this, this success? Well, Jill, Jill, uh, Jill understood what I did, and so she got me to do the right thing, you know. I'm like a black and decker drill, you know, it's no good if you drill a hole in the wrong place. <laughs> so, and Jill knew where to put the drill and get the, get the trigger and get it going. She was very good at that. You're listening to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. If you like my regular podcasts, please think about making a donation. My podcasts are free, and I want to keep them free, and so donations really help me keep them that way. Head over to my donations page at www.patreon.com slash johnnygould. So, Trevor, I have been going to South Hampstead Synagogue for... Um, uh, 15 years, although I've been um, coming more recently on Saturday more regularly and it um, was a bit of a surprise to see you in there being such a fan. I was looking at this guy thinking, that bloke looks like Trevor Horn. Oh, never mind. And then sort of looking around at everyone and then I'm looking back at you and thinking, oh, that definitely that bloke looks like Trevor Horn. That's, that, is, that is weird. And then I uh, plucked up the courage after a couple of weeks and said, excuse me, are you Trevor Horn? Mm-hmm. To which you kindly said yes. Uh, <laughs> um, but as long as I can ever remember, you've been coming to synagogue every Saturday morning. Um, you're not 30, Jewish. Why, why? Thirty years, I think. Well, that's that's quite you know that, that's that's quite an attendance record. Why would you do <laughs> well, it? My, I don't know how good my attendance is. I can't make any claims for being um, a devout Orthodox Jew. And anyway, well, I mean, it's it's, yeah, it's a, of course it's obvious. I have four Jewish children. Being Jewish goes through the mother, so my children are Jewish. So, um, in a, in a way, you know, my my late wife was a very strong character, and she really liked South Hampstead. You know, her brother-in-law uh, Yaakov Osher Sinclair works at Ursamech in Jerusalem, and he said to her one day, you know, look, if you're going to drive to a Mazorti synagogue. Why don't you drive to an Orthodox synagogue? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. Why not? Why not? Indeed, right? And and so we, we changed. We started, but then she said, um, we start we started to go to this place in Marble Arch. The guys wore top hats. It was kind of I I don't know. I wasn't so crazy about it, but then. Um, her brother told her about this rabbi, Shlomo Levine. So she came back, she went over to see him. I remember she came back to him and she said, you're going to like this guy. You're going to, we're going to go to this new synagogue on Shabbos and you're going to meet him. So I guess I started going and that was probably just over 30 years ago, 32 years ago. But not every person who marries a Jewish woman who isn't brought up Jewish or has any Jewish connection... Yeah goes to synagogue for 30 years yeah but 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 uh, I you know uh, I, I was never very crazy about church but I was confirmed you know as a Christian you know when I was 14 I had to go in front of the bishop and all 
it all didn't make much sense to me. Was this the Bishop of Durham? Bishop of Durham, you got it. Yeah, and uh, that's that's quite a big bishop. Yeah, well, Durham's got a fantastic cathedral. It does, amazing place. So I got quite interested. You know, I got quite interested in the Jewish faith, and I read a lot about it. You know, I read, and it it seems to me, <laughs> once you get to know Jews, and you read the Torah, it all starts to make sense. You know, where it all seemed a bit third-hand, you know, when you're learning it in the Christian terms. But Jews kind of live it. They live a lot of it. And for whatever reason, I've been vegetarian and sort of I eat a bit of fish, but only kosher fish. And also for like nearly 30, over 30 years now. So I never eat, you know, I haven't eaten anything, never have anything. Trafe in the house, I really try try. It's a slog. Believe me, Jewish parents have got my sympathy. I know how hard it is keeping it out. I suppose, I, I, I suppose, in a way, too, um, I, could, I felt like it was something I, I could relate to. You know, and I, I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't liked it. No one forced me to. Although it was a nice time because we started a walk to synagogue. For a while, we were sort of quite sort of observant, really. And then, you know. You sort of lapse again, you know, a bit. I thought of uh, converting to Judaism a few times because um, I believe in it much more than I would believe in pretty much anything else. But at the moment, it'd be very hard for me because you know, it, when you play a lot of concerts, quite often they're on a Friday night, you know. And it's hard because of the way that financially it's all set up. It's hard to say I can't do that, you know. Yeah. But your religious conviction with Judaism is, is therefore to say, I see it from myself, I see you reading the Torah portion in English, yeah. and really really pouring through, really looking for its no, meaning. No, 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 well that's what you go there every week for, it's yeah. like a, a time for reflection, and then I always end up with someone's for lunch somewhere, you know, yeah. it's great. It's a, it's, a, it's a form of meditation for you, Trevor? You yeah, think? yeah, it's also, um, you know, the, when, when uh, you know, when my late wife had her accident, you know, and suddenly I, I was responsible for everything. You know, I was a child. I didn't know how to do anything. And the synagogue was very helpful over certain things, you know. There was one point where I was selling a house. I'd never sold a house before. Never really dealt with an estate agent myself before. And one of my friends, I remember, it was, he, he wrote a script for me. And then we, and then I got an offer, and then I remember calling him. Now, what do I say now? And he said, "Someone's going to come and look at your house tomorrow, and then I'll tell you what to say." And the next day, some guy who I'd seen at synagogue showed up. Well, hi. <laughs> I'm just going to look round, looked round, and, and went. And then the next day, my friend called me up. He said, "Right, is have you got a pen? This is what you're going to say. You're going to say." I want sealed bids over this five and a quarter and I want them by next Wednesday and whoever gets the furthest over five and a quarter and the estate, when I said to the estate agent he said you're mad you're mad you're crazy I said um, you know I'm just reading the script I said that's what I want to do right he called me back the next week he said sit down he said you're a crafty one aren't you he said you won't believe the offers we've had I just followed the script. That was all from synagogue, you know. It made me laugh when he said, you're a cunning one, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
So the community that you find within the synagogue and the Jewish community yeah. um, is something perhaps I might venture to suggest is even richer than the musical community that you must have such great warmth with as well. Is that is that a fair thing to say? Well, I, I don't sort of differentiate between the two things. We, uh, Jews are a lot of, you know, all musicians, in order to get up on a stage and play an instrument, they're all, they all have a cert- they're all a certain kind of person. And musicians generally get on with each other, you know? Well, they try to. Um, and, you know, when you're in a band, it's like being in a family, literally like being in a family. Mm-hmm. Everybody looks after each other. And all musicians are stars in their own show, you know, in their own movie. You know, this, and Jews are exactly the same. <laughs> all Jews are stars in their own movie. You know, it's a kind of, it, it comes with the turf. And I understand that, you know. It's, uh, uh, it means, though, that you, you get some of the, the best conversation, you know. It's, uh, I always like talking to people and some of the best conversations, you know, the people you bump into, you know, that you wouldn't normally meet, you know, like someone like Roger Gerson, who's an immigration lawyer. Uh, but, you know, really interesting people that can tell you real stuff about the world. Yeah. It's true. I mean, you know, here I am sitting with you yeah. because I am Jewish, because I noticed you in synagogue. Yeah. And this podcast, this idea that I came up with and which you are the sixth guest of, oh, right. has provided me with a sort of mobility and access to people that just uh, sitting down here, this, the fifth, this fifth former in Birmingham in my grammar school in right. 1982, that said, by the way, in 2019, you're going to be sitting in... Uh, Trevor Horn's uh, front room, yes, the ABC bloke, mm-hmm. uh, sitting and talking about this because he's a member of the show which you're going to go and live in London uh, by all these years later is, <laughs> is, yeah. is, um, it is quite something. I mean, you know, I, 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 I see you there, it's, it's lovely to see you there, and um, the yeah, community. guilty that I don't go enough. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, it's, it's not far, is it? Well, uh, it's going to be not far, <laughs> but it hasn't opened up yet. No, that's right, that's right. So, I mean, do you, I mean, is it something perhaps, I mean, obviously, uh, notwithstanding commitments to sort of Friday night and Saturday night concerts, is it something really that you, you, would, you would build to? Or is it something, I mean, actually, you don't need to convert to come on, uh, on a Shabbos, do you? You don't need uh, to no, be no, 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 of course not. You don't need to, and no one asks. It's, um, it's been so long, I suppose, uh, the thing, the thing is, you know, when you're a musician and you're trying to get somewhere in the music business, all the way through my twenties, I didn't come from a, I didn't come from a social system that I wanted to go back into. You know, I was like you. I went to grammar school, and then I, you know, failed all my old levels, so I, I had to earn a living, and then I, became, you know, I was a professional musician from then on. You don't have much of a social circle outside of other musicians because you, you lead a different life. You know. You work on New Year's Eve, you work on Christmas Eve, you work in the evenings when everybody's off, and when everybody's at work, you're out with nothing to do, which is wonderful, believe me. Mm-hmm. It was one of the nicest things about being a professional musician. Um, so, so you know, um, meeting my late wife and sort of gradually getting into sort of North London Jewish society was the first time I'd ever really, apart from, you know, when I was living in Colbank Terrace, and, uh, and 
because my mother, mother's name, I've been Hetenley Hole up in Durham, and because my mother's name was Betty Lampton, and everybody knew the Lamptons, I was uh, Betty Lampton's lad, and I was untouchable. Anybody lays a hand on you, you get bred, because you're Betty Lampton's lad. Um, I grew up with really rough men around, and uh, you know, I wore glasses from when I was four, so I was always re regarded as um, brains. They used to call me brains. I would Trevor read a book in hell. Used to say about me because I used to read all the time. Right. But they're all very nice to me. Yeah. Uh, I suppose coming to you know, but I left Durham, you know, when I was sixteen, and that whole side, my mother's side of the family, my mother's side of the family were miners, and mm -hmm. my father's side were school teachers. You know. My, my father's sis, oldest sister was the local headmistress, so it was, you know, it was, you know, my my father's family kind of disowned him after he married my mother a little bit, because she came from miners like you stuff, you know. It's interesting. So, so when I um, first started to meet, there's an interesting lack of um, classlessness about Jewish society. Yeah. Even though you know, I have some my. A dearest oldest friend is very English middle class and he's a lovely man. You know, every time he comes to synagogue, he always says, "Man, if I know the street, vodka at the end of the service, I'd go to church." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's uh, so. What I'm saying is, I was probably looking for something to identify with. Really, so when you're a musician, you're just out there in the middle of nowhere, yeah. anyway, you know. And and I also seen seen everything from both sides. I've seen it from, you know, not having to. I've seen. I know what it's like to have no money, you know, and I know what it's like to have a bit of money. You know, the one good thing about it is that if you've got money, it saves you having to worry about not having any, because if you don't have any, that's the biggest problem. <laughs> you know, I've got to eat. I've yeah. got to pay the rent. Do you think your journey into sort of North London Jewish society, is, as you put it? Um, is a kind of a sort of longing for many people actually and not, not that they should become Jews but the, the fact that there isn't a definable enough society a community around individuals today that that is a richness of the Jewish community that there is such a support mechanism you know if I look back on it I wouldn't have been drawn to it if I hadn't liked the people that was the thing uh, that I just met a lot of people that I liked um, some of them are crazier than others. <laughs> you found that out. <laughs> some of them are plain nuts, uh, but but generally they're all likable yeah. and interesting. And I've never really been anywhere where you've met that many interesting people. You know, I suppose put simply, it wasn't anything that I I felt was sort of forced in any way. And then of course you. I used to come with uh, my late wife's father a lot, you know, David. And I used to sit with them, the old guys, they're all gone now. Mm. Back in the day, him and, and uh, what was his name? Uh, well, yeah, there was a whole, uh, the guy that was the chaplain for all the prisons. Right. More, a lovely bunch, you know. Uh, Morris Ostro's father-in-law, Charles, I haven't seen him for a while. You know, Charles, uh, I spent lunches with Charles listening to him talk about his life in Paris in the Second World War, you know? That's what I... That's what you don't get. And, I, I, and that's what you get with synagogue. It's people and uh, being together, you know, and helping each other. And 
if they if anybody from the synagogue asks me for help I try and help you know I mean the thing is the people that are in the synagogue set the tone of it in the end mm-hmm. and Southampton is an interesting place because it's it's not like your usual synagogue but then your usual synagogue probably isn't like your usual <laughs> synagogue anyway Trevor, what would you say to the growing issue of anti-Semitism, to the people who call themselves anti-Zionists, people who are behaving in such a reprehensible way that putting pressure under under so many Jewish people, questioning their Britishness, and really a lot of people in the synagogue and around Jewish life are thinking, how long can I live in this country? What's your message? I don't know, the Jewish faith it says um, seek the fortune or seek the um, success of the city to which you have been exiled you know and I think that's I think that's the the way you have to look at Jews that's what they do Jews try and make things better they're they're, they're in a country and and they may not you know they, they've got a slightly separate religion but if you need them to help with anything they're an amazing resource you know and you know that what they're doing they've pretty much been doing for a few thousand years so there's a certain kind of stability to it that's you know some people might think that was uh, being a bit naive but that's what I actually believe and and I think in a way that you know I'm, I firmly believe that the Jews are kind, of like, are kind of like the canary in the coal mine that once the Jews start getting a rough time you know it's it's not getting good now as far as where is this coming from I think if you look in America, that there's a lot of um, really good communication in America between the Muslim community and the Jewish community. The Muslim community in America, the Islamic community, has really come out and, and you know and been up front mm-hmm. a few times. As well, they should because you know once all that stuff starts, um, it's uh, it's not good. I don't know. I don't know where it's coming from. It, at the moment, you see, at the moment, you, you you do have a situation where, where, where for for better or for worse, the um, the whole thing in in, in Israel is, is a cause has become a bit of a cause. The Palestinians have, have have got themselves to be like new South Africans mm. or whatever amongst young people, and so Israel, you know. If, if you don't take a balanced view of it, it's possible. And then, of course, for the, you, you can equate that once you start to think about that. If, if you look at it in proportion, it, it's very difficult to um, for somebody to just dip in. It's so easy to paint Israel in this way. But if you actually look at what's going on in the Middle East, behind all of this, you know... The idea that 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 you could force somebody to make peace in a situation where really, you know, to be honest, no peace is actually possible, and it hasn't been possible since 1948. Mm-hmm. It'll take a massive shift of of uh, of something I don't know what mm-hmm. to kind of sort it out. And at mm-hmm. the moment, they, they they just have to contain it. It's all down to the down to the same thing. Uh, People short of money. The thing is, if if if, the, if they could get any kind of sensible leadership in Gaza that wanted to make a difference, the difference would be astonishing. But they don't. It's still the mm-hmm. same old mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. 
there's lots of things you could do. I, th- I think the young Palestinians, because I, I've had a couple of Palestinian boys over for lunch, and we mm-hmm. actually put money into a, a studio in East Jerusalem that we built Psalm, and boy, are they tired of their leadership, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it, take, you know, it takes two to tango. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Y- y- God help them. Anybody who can sort that one out. It's like a, it's like the fights between the family fight. It's, it's the worst. And it's in Israel. It's almost like that. You know. to miss an opportunity well well people I've used that one boy you want, don't want to use it around the people I talk with they get furious <laughs> with I realize. never miss opportunity to miss an opportunity look they've they, they've never been coming at it really from the angle that, that they were actually going to make peace they've just been coming from all kinds of angles but not that one and at the moment it's worse than it's ever been because Abbas looks really weak he's going down you know, something, what the hell's going to happen then? And, you know, Gaza just goes from bad to worse. They're taking, you know, sacks of money in there. I mean, it's it's crazy. You know, so you, you know the Hamas lost the, the press over here when they executed 20 people in the street. Yeah. Since then, I've hardly seen anything about Hamas in the mm-hmm. paper over here. That, that was like, forget it. You know, it's horrible. Imagine living under that. We can't imagine it. No. You must have encountered within the music business, within the entertainment trade, some form of anti-Semitism. You you were you walk oh. you, you walk you walk in a skull cap. I've seen you in the street in, in wearing a couple. Yeah, I think that's that's good. I mean, I don't do that. Yeah, fair play. I'm terrible because sometimes I'm like, bring it on. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, I'm silly. But they use words like apartheid. Of course they do. They try to wind Jews up. Anything like that, you know, winds Jewish people up. It's like use all the words against them that they've used to, to for themselves. You know, use the Nazis against them. Yeah, yeah. Call them Nazis. Compare them to Nazis. Yeah. And Jews get upset by it. Yeah, it's just name calling. But man, if you had to deal with all those mofos, you, you'd be because it's 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 a different world, and we can't understand it over here. And sitting here and having all these sort of ideas about what it should be like. I understand why they do it. It's like a new cause, like Che Guevara. It's like a, they managed to get mm-hmm. it like mm-hmm. an iconic thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got me talking. You don't, about you don't mind well. me talking about this, do you? No, no, I don't. I argue with my, a lot of my friends about it. You know, I have a friend, this Stuart Copeland, who's very uh, pro-Palestinian, uh, and he grew up in Lebanon. He was bombed by the Israeli Air Force, so he's got a bit of a grudge. You're talking about the police drummer. Yeah. I absolutely love his work. He actually he understands Jewish people, but he right. gets he and I we we we've worn it out now because we used to shout about it. Mm. You know, 
Uh, I just wanted. I'm just. Uh, there's a there's a thread here. My my grandma Oliver Shollum was from Newcastle. Right. Right. And she was a straight talking person. Is there? Uh, and she was Jewish as well, obviously. And so I'm asking: Is there something in the Jewish character of straight talking, the sort of cutting to the chase, the reality about about being a Geordie, being from yeah. the northeast, and and being involved in the Jewish community, which is a lot of parallels. Yeah, well, I, I suppose I came from a family where there's a very strong mother. My mother was very strong, and that's quite a, a Jewish trait, yeah. you know. Geordies is yeah, pretty straight talk, but they're not not so much on the emotion. No, you know, the psychiatrist said to me that my upbringing had been repressed, you know, emotionally. But I don't see it. It's called stiff upper lip, I think they call it. <laughs> Trevor, thank you so much. Thank you. That was lovely. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or click on the PayPal icon on the donations page at jewishstate.co.uk or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee at coffee.com slash Johnny Gould. That's ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould.